If you have a Bible, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, and the title of the message is The Precious Blood of Our Lord Jesus Christ. I was praying about what to share on Communion Sunday, and I happened to hear a message by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Just kind of one of those things that resonated with me, and so it's kind of the basis and the inspiration. It kind of roughly uses outline with what he said, but it just really spoke to my heart. And so we're going to look here in Ezekiel 36, and we're going to begin reading in verse 16. And it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord, and are going forth out of his land. But I had pity for my own holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. And then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God." And so we're really going to be looking at, really concentrating mostly today on verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And so what we're looking at here, and especially here from verses 24 to 28 in Ezekiel, is really it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's in the Old Testament. But listen, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is entirely through the Old Testament. You know, Jesus said this. He told the Jews in John 5, 39, he says, search the scriptures. He gave them a search warrant. He says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But he said, and he's talking about the Old Testament, he says, they are they which testify of me. Everything in the Bible is pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ and what happens on Calvary. So all of the Old Testament, I would say, is preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Genesis 3.15, it begins right there, right in the garden, when God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And I believe there's the gospel right there in seed form, started in Genesis 3. And you could just go right on through, but just a few more examples. When Abraham offers up Isaac, that's just a beautiful picture of the father offering up his only son for a sacrifice. And then, of course, Exodus, that is the ultimate type of our salvation in the blood of the lamb. He was slain. His blood was put on the lintels. And Israel, the death angel, passed over them. And they weren't judged when the Egyptians, the sinful Egyptians, were judged. His people were spared. And it's a type of what we're going to see today with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God gives Ezekiel a message for his people, Israel. They're in Babylonian captivity, and Israel's been punished for their sins, taken into captivity. Her sins, he says, they've defiled the land and caused her to be unclean in God's eyes. And that's over in verse 17. If you go back and look there, he says, son of man. When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, he said they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. And it says their way, the way they lived, the way they were, was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. 
And so despite the fact that they were unclean, had worshipped idols, had totally disregarded God's laws and God's ways, he goes on to promise, he says, I'm still, nonetheless, I'm going to deliver you. But if they would have looked at themselves, he's like, going to deliver us for how we are. They knew they were bad, unclean. They're profaning his name amongst the people they're taking into captivity. He says, I'm not going to do it for your sakes or for how good you are, just like with us, right? He didn't save us because of how good we are. He says, but I'm going to do this for my own namesake. I'm going to gather you, my people, and bring you back. And that's over here in verses 22 to 23. He says, therefore, say unto the house of Israel, saith the Lord, I don't do this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy namesakes, which you have profaned among the heathen, whither you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. This message that Ezekiel preaches to Israel can be preached today because man has not changed. So we may drive cars instead of riding mules like they did. And they had dusty roads that they took their camels down and their horses and all that, right? And had to walk on. And we've got paved concrete roads. But listen, we are the same as them in so many ways because we gossip like they did. We have jealousy, anger, bitterness, adulterers, homosexuals, liars, and thieves. Don't we have that? Just like they did. Because man still has the same problems he's always had. He's never changed. And God hasn't changed either. And his message has never changed, and it never will. And here's the message we're going to hear today, that he is the only solution to man's problem that has never changed. And so just like Israel of old, who were sinful, lost, unclean, and in bondage, so are men in the world today. And God can help, can't he? Because everybody needs to hear the gospel. And that's what we have in verses 25 to 28. We won't reread that right now. Here's what we see here in these verses as it goes through. This is the gospel being presented. Let me ask you this. What is the first thing that has to happen for man to be restored to fellowship with God? What is the first thing that has to happen? First thing that has to happen is the uncleanness, the guilt, and the stain of sin has got to be dealt with. It's got to begin there. And then everything else flows from that. And that's what we have there. That's why we're going to begin at verse 25. That uncleanness, that guilt has got to be dealt with. Then he says, I'll give you a new heart. Then I'll put my spirit within you. Then you'll be able to walk in my ways. But the first thing that has to be dealt with is that uncleanness. God's saying, I'll bring you all back to the land. But you polluted my land the way you were before. He says, I'll bring you back to the land. In other words, back to me. He says, but first, you're going to have to be cleaned up. He's telling them, you're filthy. I mean, you ever have your kids when they go on one of those Fujian camps or on a camping trip or whatever, and they come in, and what's the first thing you do? You take one whiff of them, and you're like, head upstairs, strip off your clothes, get up in the bathroom, and wash like really good. Come back down, and then we'll talk. <laughs> and that's what God's saying. So I'm going to bring you back, but I'm going to clean you up first. That's what he's going to do here. You've got to be washed and cleansed. And here's the problem that all of us have. And that is this, that God is holy and he's pure and he dwells in light, it says, that no man can approach unto. And so how can unclean man come and fellowship with him? And I'm saying verse 25 right there, that is the answer. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, he says, I will cleanse you. And so any gospel, and there's a lot of them out there now, any gospel that doesn't deal with the sin and guilt of man, it's not the gospel of the Bible. Because the gospel is that we are sinners, unclean in God's sight, need to be washed and cleansed, and God has provided a way, graciously provided a way. You know, you talk about the Romans road. And that's what it is in chapter 1 where it begins. Where does it begin? Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation on 
to everyone that believes. But then he goes on to say, here's the first thing, though, we all need to understand, and that is this, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath, he is holy. He is going to punish all ungodliness, and that has been revealed, and it will be. He goes on to chapter 2. It will be revealed. If it's not done in this life, it will be revealed in the next. People don't want to hear that. They don't like to hear about the wrath of God. The fact of the matter is, it's a fact we can't get away from, and that is God is going to punish all ungodliness because that is what he's done to Israel here. It's right in front of us in our text that we read. Verses 18 and 19, look, he says, Wherefore, God says, I poured my fury or his wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings I judged them. He wasn't unfair in his judgment of them. He punished them harshly, but he said, I only did that according to your ways and according to your doings is the way I've judged you. And so they weren't keeping the Ten Commandments he'd given them, not in any sense of the word. But think about it. Why are the Ten Commandments given? Why were they ever given? So we could try to keep them and see how good we could be. They were only given to show us our uncleanness and the holiness of God. So listen, without that, and you don't have that as part of your gospel, and churches don't preach the law and do a law work in their people, sinners will never be brought to repentance because that is God's way. So go into prison. You go out and you witness to somebody. How many times you witness to anybody and you ask them, are you a good person? The old Ray Comfort thing. I'm telling you, it does work though. And I mean everybody. I don't care who you are. They say they're a good person. Really, you're a good person. Okay, I said, well, that's fine. You know, explain to him God's law is a mirror it's so you can see yourself as he sees you because you just compare yourself to everybody else. I'm sure you are a nice guy. And you start going through that law and you ask him, hey, do you think you're going to heaven or hell? I'm a good person. Well, I think I'll go to heaven. I really do. Okay. And you go through the law. And the law, you know what the law affects? What we're going to talk about today, your conscience. You say, all right, well, let me just ask you, have you ever told a lie? And you don't know how many people, it's hard for them to admit. And they'll say, yeah, who hadn't? Well, what does that make you? Uh, A sinner or uh, a bad person. They can't say they're a liar. Really have a hard time with that. You can practically put it in their mouth and they have trouble saying that. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, yeah. Well, that was a while back. Well, okay. What does that make you? A thief? You go through all that. You ever looked on a woman with lust? Well, who hadn't? Well, you obviously have, so what does that make you? An adulterer. And then when you present to him, well, look, by your own admission, you know, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer. That's how God sees you. All of a sudden, their smile that they were going to heaven has turned upside down. And then you ask them again, and this is almost 100% of the time if someone's not a Christian. So let me ask you now, where do you think you're heading? Heaven or hell? Oh, I'm heading to hell. You know why? Because their conscience is telling them that. They're convicted about that. That's what happens. And so here's the first question we have to ask. Because man's got a problem. He's unclean and God is holy. So how can sinful man approach a holy God? How can sinful man approach a holy God? And I'm telling you, our Bible is filled from cover to cover with the answer. You know how it happens? Through sacrifice and blood. That's how it happens. Genesis 4, Abel brings an offering of his flock. The blood comes starting right after the garden. And actually, I believe in the garden when God sacrificed and made those coats of skin for Adam and Eve. All the patriarchs had to do what? To have a relationship with God. They all sacrificed on altars, didn't they? Sacrifice animals on altars. Exodus, like we said, that lamb, for those people to be delivered and to be God's people and for that death angel because the wages of sin is what and for us to be delivered a death has to take place and that blood of that perfect spotless land had to be put on those lintels or those doorposts for those people not to be judged with sinful Egypt and so you have Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers and Deuteronomy and as you read those books blood is everywhere there's an elaborate sacrificial system where blood is everywhere 
God dwelt, for him to dwell in the midst of his people, which he did in the tabernacle, it was set right in the middle of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness at night. And he would come down, that's where he lived. And for him to do that, there had to be blood. It was the central feature of their worship. And they had an altar. When you walked into that place, here's an altar. There's blood, buckets of it poured out on the ground in front of it, blood on top of it, blood on the horns of the altar. All of the vessels in the temple are sanctified with blood. You go inside, there's blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Every year it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. So everywhere you go in that tabernacle, there is blood. Blood was sprinkled on the book, it says, when Moses made the covenant with him. And then he sprinkled blood on the people. How would you like that? I had a big thing up here and just started flinging blood on y'all and you got blood on you. But that's what happened to those people. Blood was everywhere. We're singing about the blood today. It's critical. As Spurgeon said this, it was God's intent to awaken in man a great disgust of sin by making him see it could only be put away by suffering and death. And God was showing Israel and he's showing us that there is going to be no relationship between man and God while he's still defiled by sin. Because God said what in Isaiah 59, we know this, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And our conscience, doesn't your conscience tell you that? Talking about your conscience, when sin is present in your heart and you know you haven't gone to the Lord yet, that keeps you from approaching the Lord, doesn't it? It does. Let's be honest about that, okay? In Luke 5, when Jesus got into Peter's boat and he said, I want you to launch out into the deep and you're going to let down your net and you're going to get a big bunch of fish. And Peter protested at first. He says, well, we've been out all day, toiling all night, haven't got a thing. Nevertheless, Lord, at your word, I'll do that. And so they obeyed the Lord. They launched out their nets and it said they pulled in so many fish that their boats were beginning to sink. I would have loved to have been in that boat, but there had to be something about the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit on him. I don't think Peter had him all figured out yet, but he knows if nothing else, this man is a holy prophet with a connection to the Lord because it says when he sees that, he fell on his knees in front of Jesus and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now look, Peter's all right around his buddy John. He's not doing that. But he gets in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and it put him on his knees in conviction. You know why? Because being around the holiness of God like that, it brought out his guilt and sin. It's right there on the inside of him. It's like you would read stories. They said Smith Wigglesworth was let down into these mines one time. And these people, they said, just your presence, his presence, they would say, this is what's recorded, would bring conviction of sin over people because of the presence of the Holy Spirit on him. And that is a basic principle taught in the Bible, emphasized in the Bible, that if we want to be blessed and restored to God's favor, our guilt and sin has got to be removed. And so we've got to be willing to humbly acknowledge our guilt when it's there. We do. You know, in Luke 18... The Pharisee didn't think he had a problem. He had the Pharisee and the publican went in to pray in the temple because he thanked God. He says, I thank you, Lord. I am not like other men, unjust, extortioners, adulterers, or like this publican. Because how did he deal with his guilt? He had to have guilt. He dealt with it by his good works. He says, oh, no, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I present. I'm fine. That was him. But the publican was somebody else. He had his eyes opened as his state before God, what it was. And it says that he stood afar off. You know why? He's like Peter. His conscience is telling him, look, the way I've been living, I have no right to approach God. I can't approach him. Said so he stood afar off. He's ashamed of himself. It says he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Have you ever talked to somebody that's just been involved in a sin and they can't even look you in the eye? And that's the way he was. It says couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. Couldn't approach the Lord. He beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And merciful is a word that means be propitiated. And propitiation, it means that God is angry with you because of your sin and needs to be appeased. His anger needs to be appeased. And the way it was done was what? 
That animal had to die, and when he saw that blood, the Lord saw that blood, his anger would be propitiated. And that's what that man is saying. Please, God, be propitiated by a sacrifice because I know what I deserve. I'm totally unworthy to be here. Unlike this Pharisee. I'm saying that's the person. When we're like that, not justifying our sin and bowing before the Lord humbly like that. You know what Jesus said about this man? He says, I'll tell you what. He's hearing what these two are saying. He says, I'll tell you, this man pointing to the publican. He says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. And there is a humility that all of us should have before the Lord. So we can think we've made some spiritual progress. And I'll tell you what, the longer I get in this walk and the more I hear, well, this person is just a saint and whatever I'm realizing, no, they ain't. Because nobody is. Not like what people think. We're still so far, no matter how much progress we've made from the holiness, I believe that God demands and expects from us. All of us have room for improvement. I read this, George Mueller, and I've heard this in several places. By all accounts, he was truly one of the most humble, godliest men you would ever meet. And that's just the way they said it. And when, in his 90s, they said he just had a countenance that just glowed. When he was older and he retired from running those homes and began to travel and preach, listen to what he said, George Mueller. He says, I have set out from home to offer a word here and there as God may give me openings. And as he may help me, I am seeking to speak a word, specially of counsel and advice for the younger brethren and sisters in Christ to uphold the honor and glory of his name. Now listen to this. He says, one or another may say, what a good thing that is. And here he starts to talk about himself. He says, but what does this poor worm say of himself? Before my God, I say I am a poor, miserable sinner. Although I do not live in open sin and do not give occasion to people to point at me and say, see what he is doing again. See how inconsistent he is. It's not thus with me. Say, no, I'm not an open sinner. Nobody's going to point at me and say, look what all he says. No, it's not like that. He goes, but I know me. He says, but still I am a sinner in myself. And all I do or say is more or less mixed with sin. All my efforts need the precious blood of Christ to cleanse them. And I have to go with my preaching to the Lord to make me clean and all these poor attempts to serve him or to help my brethren. Now, he's not saying he can live in sin. He didn't live in sin. But his thing is, he says, I know me. <laughs> we have to know ourselves, don't we? If we think we're like Job to where we've gotten and attained some sort of righteousness, God will put us in a trial. He'll put us in something. He'll bring somebody along our paths that'll let us know we still have a long way to go or grow, however you want to say it. But here's the second question I want to get to. So we dealt with that, all right? We all have to admit we have that stained guilt of sin to some degree. How is the stain of sin removed? How do we deal with guilt when we miss it? Because all of us will miss it. How do we make our hearts pure? And if we are honest and we admit it, we have to admit that a lot of times we try to do it ourselves, don't we? And what I mean by that is we'll justify our actions. So we've done something wrong, we know we've sinned, and instead of admitting it, going to the Lord or whatever, we justify it. Well, they deserved it. They're just pushing me too far, right? Or it wasn't really a lie. It wasn't that big a lie because I knew I'd have hurt his feelings if I'd have told it, and on and on. And so how many times does our conscience, and this is for all of us, prick us, or we feel the Holy Spirit inside us telling you, stop saying what you're about ready to say when we backbite, slander, or gossip about someone, and we go ahead and do it, and we justify ourselves. Does everyone know what I'm talking about? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Or sometimes we just hope time will erase our guilt. But here's the problem with that. Your conscience won't let you go. Your conscience keeps pretty good records. I read one time that this Nazi war criminal escaped to South America, and he thought he had put all of those atrocities he had done, he thought he had put it behind him. It was there for 50 years or so, however long, a long period of time. And a reporter found out where he was and interviewed him and started bringing up all the things he had done. And immediately his conscience 
was resurrected, and he just blasted out in anger. You can't get away from your conscience. As much as we try to justify it, it will tell you. It won't lie to you, will it, as we heard that many times. So what is our only hope? What is our only hope? That David found out that the only way to be clean in the sight of God was for God to wash him. So listen, David had committed murder. He committed adultery. He tried to cover up his sin. He thought he had taken care of that when he got rid of Uriah. And time went on. Time wasn't helping him at all. He was miserable. And a year later, he's finally confronted by Nathan the prophet. God, in his grace, through that prophet, had the Holy Spirit convict him, opened up his heart to where David could see himself for as he was. And David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. And once he sees that, you know what? David knows that he cannot cleanse his own heart because he knows I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm stained, and I'm guilty. What am I going to do? That's the way he was. So he cries out to the Lord. He does. Turn to Psalm 51. If you would, we're talking about the way we can be cleansed. Here's King David in Psalm 51. Beginning in verse 1. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, not according to what he's done, but according to what thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And look what he says in verse two, wash me thoroughly. That's what we're talking about from mine iniquity, this stain, this inward in his soul. This pollution, he says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And look down in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, Lord. You have to do it, though, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. And only God can do this. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, he says, and renew a right spirit within me. And David was a saved man. He was. He didn't have to get resaved. But he's like all of us that are saved in here. We have missed it. And we can't clean ourselves. This is how we have to go before the Lord when we sin and when we miss it. Wash me thoroughly, Lord, for mine iniquity. We become polluted, unclean, and vile in God's sight. We need cleansing, and we can't do it. We have to cry out to God. Only God can cleanse us. In our verse in Ezekiel 25, God says himself, he says, I will be the one. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. And he says at the end of that verse, I will cleanse you. So the third thing I want to look at today is how does God remove our stain or our uncleanness? In rereading verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Ezekiel 36, 25, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, he says, will I cleanse you? And what is that water in Ezekiel? I think it's metaphorically speaking of something else, okay? But they would sprinkle blood on people, and they, in Numbers 19, they would take a red heifer, would take this red heifer, take him outside the camp, they would kill it, they would collect his blood, and then they would take the blood and the heifer, and they would burn it, all burn it down to ashes, and then someone would collect those ashes and they would take it somewhere outside the camp, it said, into a clean place. And there it would be stored. And so if somebody touched a dead body, a dead anything, they became unclean. Unclean until they had to go and take some of that ash from that red heifer and they would put it in water. And somebody that was clean then had to take that water and sprinkle it on the unclean person. They did that at the beginning of seven days and at the end of seven days, and then the person would be pronounced clean because of that sprinkling of that water, because that blood of that red heifer was in that water. And God says, if you do that, if you become unclean and become defiled and don't go through that cleansing process, you will be cut off. That's the end of you, is what he told him. It had to be done. So what do we do? That's how they were purified. How are we 
purified from our uncleanness. Well, Hebrews 9.13 tells us, and we'll look at that here in a little bit, it says it's no longer by the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats, nor by the ashes, it says, of the red heifer sprinkled on us. It says, but well, we are now cleansed. Can anyone want to take a guess? By the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody would have got an A on that test, right? I think so. That's how we're cleansed. So now we have a fountain that's been opened up for our cleansing. So Zechariah, those of you that know your Old Testament, Zechariah prophesied that in the last days, upon Israel, upon that nation, God's going to do a purging work. But at one point, he says, I am going to pour out my spirit of grace and supplication upon this nation. And when that happens, all of a sudden, that grace is going to open their eyes. And he says, they are going to look on him whom they have pierced. And you know what's going to happen? The realization on all the Jews, they are going to realize how wicked they were, what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ that didn't deserve it, and his love for them. And it says their eyes are going to be open and they're going to mourn. Zechariah goes on to say this in 13.1. He says, in that day, when they feel the whole impact of their sin and guilt, he says, in that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And that fountain is going to be for the cleansing, it says, of their sin and uncleanness. Because that is what has to happen to all of us. That fountain of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to wait. It's already open for us, isn't it? That's the song that we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. What's the last part what we're talking about? It says they lose all their guilty stains. It's got to go. That's what that fountain does. That stain, that consciousness that you're wicked, polluted in the sight of God. That's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. The second verse, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. I always like that second verse because I thought, I think I'm probably about as vile as him. And that gives me hope. Wash all my sins away. Think about it. What could that dying thief do to wash his sins away on that cross? You think about it. He's hung on that cross. He doesn't have a free hand to wash himself in any sense of the word, does he? doesn't have a free hand. Only the Lord Jesus Christ in his blood could wash him. And you think about that. He had to be looking over in him. And what is he seeing? This man that is mangled. You can't even tell he's a man, it says in Isaiah 53. Blood all over him. And he had to have a revelation that that blood was for him. That that sacrifice was for him. Because that has to happen in everybody's salvation. They have to recognize that a sacrifice, a death took place, and blood was shed for you and for me. Doesn't happen any other way. I mean, that revelation went all the way back. Those Old Testament saints, they had to have faith in a blood substitutionary sacrifice. It's the only way you can be saved. And you think about it. He had to see that. That's amazing. Free, undeserving grace. This man, it was as vile as they get. They didn't put just anybody on a cross. And yet he saw in that instance, saw God's free, pardoning blood given to him. Lord, remember me when you come into thy kingdom. That's a revelation. Called him Lord. And that is love, isn't it? That is the redeeming love that we sang about today. Revelation 1.5, King James Version. All the other versions have changed this. But I'm going to read the King James says in Revelation 1.5, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's the love of God. Amen. The love of God isn't that my job's going good or I feel real good or he's got my marriage going better. Uh-uh. The love of God is shown in that redemption that he washed us in his blood. He said, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And gave his son, and we're back to that word, to be a propitiation for our sins. That propitiation, they're trying to change that word in new translations. 
And they're trying to do away with the wrath of God. But that is why we will be rejoicing, because we will see the justice and wrath poured out on others. And that somehow or another, he singled us out by his love and redeemed us from that. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, when he sees us, he's propitiated. That's the word for mercy seat in the New Testament. God looks down. There's the law. It's speaking judgment. But he sees that blood of that animal. And he sees us under the blood of Jesus Christ. And his wrath is appeased because a death has taken place. That's the gospel. Anything less than that is not the gospel. And so listen, we got communion today. I heard somebody say, God in his wisdom has made this a commandment, instituted it, that the church does this. We do it once a month. We could do it every week. But we recognize we're going to hold what resembles the blood to know there is no way we can save ourselves. There's no way works are going to get us in. It's purely by this blood that was given that he washes us in. The sacrifice that he provided never cleanse ourselves from sin. And it's only through that that we can have fellowship with God in any sense. Go to Him in prayer. Access to His throne. So Israel, the way it was set up, you think about that Old Testament, the tabernacle and in the temple. You never could approach God except through blood. Much blood. And it's the same with us. We cannot approach God except through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying that is more on my heart, has been for quite a while now. Well, that's what we pray when we pray a prayer meeting. We just recognize that if it wasn't for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, this prayer meeting would be a total waste of time. So if you would, put something there and turn back to Hebrews chapter 9. Look what it says here. We quoted this partially earlier, but look in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. Look what it says in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, what will it do? It'll purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what we need to have because our conscience is going to attack us by things we've done. And we need to have that blood. I've applied that blood to our conscience by the Holy Spirit to give us that peace. No, it's been dealt with. And look in chapter 10. Look over here. We're talking about going to the throne of grace in prayer. And here's how it happens. Here's how we draw nigh to God. Hebrews 10, verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness, confidence to enter into the holiness. How do we do it? By the blood of Jesus, it says, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. Look what it says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart, a sincere heart, he's saying. We need to be sincere in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what we need to do. (laughs) Because sin is a stain, it's a pollution. And that sense of guilt that you feel when you know you've sinned against God, it's an uncleanness, isn't it, that we feel in our heart? You guys know what I'm talking about? Y'all don't look at me that hard. Look at it says in verse 22, but this is what we need to do. We need to draw near with the true heart. If you're in repentance and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled by the blood from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We, that doesn't have to keep us from the throne just because we missed it. We've got to ask God when we sin. And we go to him and we're humble and we're repentant. We have to ask him to sprinkle our hearts with his blood. And then we have to trust the Holy Spirit to bring that to our consciousness that all is well. Do you all know what I'm talking about? You miss it and you know you missed it and you feel that guilt and you go to the Lord. And sometimes he gives you that instant release, right? And sometimes it doesn't happen right away, but it happens. You just have to hold on by faith, don't you? That his blood has cleansed your sin and made everything right with you. He will do it. 
Because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's that in our soul, that feeling that, you know, man, I messed up. I got this guilt. He says he'll cleanse you from that, not just forgive you. He'll make let you know everything's okay. You're clean in my sight. And he does that by the Holy Spirit. And when we exercise that faith, and you have to exercise faith, you have to trust in the blood of Jesus. Didn't they have to do what he said in the Exodus? If they didn't apply that blood on those lentils, they'd have been done. We've got to apply the blood and ask God to do that. But when we do that, you know what that gives us? His blood gives us peace. We have peace with God. That's what it says. Look over, if you would, in Colossians. Turn back to Colossians chapter 1. Starting verse 19, for it pleased the Father, Colossians 1:19, that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether things in earth or in heaven, and you, that's me and you, that we were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now, what has happened because of that blood? Now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And so Paul here isn't so much talking about a feeling of peace, like, well, I feel this peace. He's not so much talking about that, but this knowledge that God is no longer angry with me. We're no longer alienated and enemies of God, but we've been reconciled. So that death, that holiness demanded a death, and it's taken place because of our sin. So John 20 says this. We're talking about it gives you peace with God. Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, and he stood right in front of them in their midst, it said. And you know what he said to them? Peace be unto you. Shalom alechem. Now, that was a common greeting they had back then, but it also when you said that to somebody that was a Jew, you were saying, I want the blessing and the favor of God in you in his coming kingdom. That's what it signified. And Jesus is saying that to them. He's adding this peace with God to his it is finished. He's letting them know everything is all right. And you know how we know that? And it was all because of the cross. Because it went on to say after he said peace be unto you in John 20, 19 to 20, it says, and when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. And then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So then you know what he did? He didn't just show them his hands. He had to do whatever he had to do. He showed them the side. Why would he show them that? Not to show them it's him. They knew it was him. But what came out of the side? If you go back a chapter in John you know what came out of there? It said when they pierced his side, water and blood, water and blood poured forth. That was that fountain of cleansing. And he's telling them that I'm your Lord, but I'm also a crucified sacrifice for you. And here I am. And they're getting the picture of who he is. Peace be unto you because of this. Now you have peace with God. You're reconciled with him. And not only is Jesus speaking peace to them, but did you know that it says his blood speaks? Did you know that? It says his blood speaks. Hebrews 12, 24 says this, but you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. And it goes on to say to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. It says Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Because in Genesis 4, when Cain slew Abel, God said this. He said to Abel, he says, what have you done? Because the voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. He said, I'm hearing his blood is crying to me from the ground. And what was his blood crying? It would have been crying out for justice, wouldn't it? For vengeance, for cursing, because God went on and cursed Cain. 
That's what his blood would have been crying out, but it says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Can you hear his blood? What is his blood speaking? What is his blood crying out? Peace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Can you hear that speaking to you? Can you hear that speaking to your conscience if your conscience is bothered? That's what his blood is speaking. Listen to the blood of Jesus sprinkling out. And God says this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. And he says, you shall be clean. That's what the blood of Jesus is, is speaking. Amen. You go to him in repentance. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, he said, will I cleanse you. There is no doubt about it. He promises it. It's a certainty. It's a fact. God says to us, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. They're gone. They're done with. And think about this. 1 Corinthians 6, he tells them, he tells the Corinthians, Paul, he says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, such were some of you, were some of you, but the first thing he tells them is, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So he's saying that was a pretty bad list of sins there and sinners. And he's saying some of you Corinthians were about as vile and wicked as sinners as you can get. But Paul says this, but no, I'm talking to you now and you are no longer that. He's saying you are washed. All of that's past. You were that in God's eyes. Now he says, you are washed. You're clean. You're in fellowship now with the Holy God. <laughs> that's what he's telling them. Fellowship with the Holy God. And that is what the gospel does for all of us. All of us were in that state. Out of fellowship. Not going to inherit the kingdom of God. We were one of those things. I guarantee it. He says, you were that, but now what are we? We're washed. We need continual washing. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 13? Yeah. He told Peter, you're clean, but your feet are going to need washed. Your daily contact with the world. You're going to need forgiveness. We're deceiving ourselves to think we aren't going to have to ask God to forgive. He says, if you think that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. We're going to need that blood to cleanse us, and we need to go to him for cleansing, don't we? If we want to maintain our communion with the Lord, to enjoy our fellowship. But that's what the blood of Jesus does. It cleanses, it restores us, brings us back into fellowship with God. And I'm saying that is a work of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit does. When Smith Swigglesworth received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he was already a saved person. But here's what the Holy Spirit will do. We talk about revival. This is what would happen. Because listen to this. When he received the Holy Spirit, here's how he described it. He said, the fire fell, and it was a wonderful time as I was there with God alone. He bathed me in power. Well, listen to what he said. I was conscious of the cleansing of the precious blood, and I cried out, clean, clean, clean. I was filled with the joy of the consciousness of the cleansing I was given a vision in which I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I beheld the empty cross, and I saw him exalted at the right hand of God the Father. He said, I could no longer speak in English, but I began to praise him in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave me utterance. And I think when the Holy Spirit comes on you, it can be in your own personal time. But he is going to give you that knowledge that you are clean, like with Smith Oglesworth. There's no filthiness in me anymore. I'm clean. I can boldly approach the throne of God. And it's all by his grace. I've never forgotten. I went back. I knew where that was at in a book I had read. I read that years back. That just struck me. But what is the Holy Spirit going to do when he comes? If he comes in our midst, he's going to magnify what? Or should I say whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to magnify the work he's done on, his, on the cross and the blood 
The blood is going to be magnified. We have a bloody religion. That's the foundation of what Christianity is, is blood. Blood represents death. And he took our place. That is the heart of the gospel. Amen? Because what can wash away my sin and your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how is your heart? How is your conscience today? Is it cleansed? Have you been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be able to approach his throne with confidence and boldness, knowing that your heart has been sprinkled from an evil conscience? That's where he wants us to be. Amen? Amen. We can all be that way. Let me just share this Andrew Kyle song. The blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. Guess what? It will never lose its power is how the song goes. It reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. Amen. You know what song we don't sing anymore that I I never got tired of? Oh, the precious blood of Jesus that made me white as snow. Praise God. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and that sacrifice he made for us on the cross and that you gave your only begotten son. We offended you, Lord, but yet the offended one is the one that gave the offering to make propitiation, to appease your wrath. And we're so thankful, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ. And I ask, Father, that You'll make this message real to anyone here that needs to know it. If their conscience is bothering them, they know they're unclean in your sight. To know that they have to flee to the cross, flee to that blood. That is their only hope. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing that can wash and take away that guilt. And I ask, Lord, that you'll put it on all of our hearts that when we sin, we go to you, Lord, for cleansing so that we can stay in fellowship with you, that if we walk in the light as you are in the light, that the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it cleanses us from sin, from when we miss it. This is as you'll speak to all of our hearts in that way, and that your blood will speak to us, Lord. Speak mercy to us and forgiveness and reconciliation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.